Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on the Jersey Shore on the afternoon of Thursday, November 16th. Joined as always by Elaine Lowe and Richard Rushfield in Los Angeles. Richard, I was kind of stunned not to see you on the Hollywood Reporter's 35 Under 35 list this week. What happened? They didn't get the memo that I'm going to be 35 for another 35 years here. So I, I, <laughs> is that right? I'm owed an uh, explanation. <laughs> Get right on that. It'll be your column next week, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, someone else not on that list, the anglers Peter Kiefer is going to be joining us in a little bit with the latest uh, and Brittany news from his story this week. Boom. Book deal news, not divorce news. And again, Peter is very resourceful. Elaine and Claire dropped some news today about the Golden Globes, which we're going to dive into shortly. Plus, we'll get into uh, Elaine's conversations with plenty of folks in the room and the SAG negotiations that she's been doing of late. We'll get Richard's sports report. What? Elaine, did you mess my Google Doc again? That, that, <laughs> I thought I revoked that access. Oh, what is I'm this? I'm so eager to hear this. What is this? The, ne- the Netflix gonna, Cup, right? Oh, all right. I was going to leave it there. Just, just that, that's it. Not, I'm one of the else. leading golf racing journalists in, in the world now. I think you're the, the only one, but yeah, exactly. And Elaine, are you ready to play a studio head? Oh, what? Play? Um, oh, I thought you were going to say, are you ready to play a pop quiz? And I was already immediately groaning, but... Uh, well, well, no, Studio Head, you've been, it's been a dream of yours since your teenage years. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll finally make that, that dream come true today here on the Ankler Podcast. So we'll have that as well. But Richard, are, are you up for starting with some good news this week? Generally not, but I'll see if I can take it. <laughs> can we get a pass on that? Okay, you'll, you'll allow it? Is that okay? I'll look the other way. Look the other way. The folks at Warner Brothers have found... Somebody new who wants to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in the movie business, Richard. So any advice for our new people who are coming to town? Just make sure you get those Oscar tickets and invitations to the parties up front. Oh, okay. As soon as your hundreds of millions run out, nobody's going to remember you at the security line. I'm sorry. <laughs> I see. Should they get receipts, Richard? Is that how this works in Hollywood? Or is that more of a receipt kind of transaction, do you think? Just get your lunches with Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie on the books very quick, I'd say. Well, all right. Well, Elaine, meet Domain Capital. They are an investment firm from Atlanta who has about a $8 billion fund that they manage, mostly in real estate. But they said a multi-year deal with Warner Brothers this week to chip in some extra cash in exchange for equity on some WB pictures for the next few years, including already contributing to Barbie and also the holiday films of Wonka and Aquaman 2. So, Elaine, maybe keep the talk of the Marvels to a minimum. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're new listeners to the podcast. We don't want to spook the new money in town. So just keep that down, all right? And they're investing this in the WB pictures that will actually be released. Is that right? I believe they're not in the write-off <laughs> pictures, exactly. I'm can sure we, they can had we a... play the in-memoriam reel for WB Slate Financers past? Of, of oh, but Slate Financers past. Let's say Slate Movies past that nobody ever saw the light of day. But yeah, we don't know just how much Domain's going to be investing in the Slate in the next couple of years. They had a stated an intention to bring about $800 million of uh, investment to our fine industry overall. But Richard, where one brawn closes, another one opens. It always goes well. Yeah. I can't imagine everybody's not throwing a billion dollars into into movie studio slates. It's the thing to do. We're, of course, alluding to the Coyote versus Acme saga that happened this week, which, of course, WB announced intention to to write off the third movie here, third major $70 million movie here with John Cena and Will Forte. Then they got some blowback uh, this time around, and now they're looking to potentially sell it off somewhere uh, else instead, and that kind of dominated the WBD talk this week. But Zaz also got the New York Times Magazine profile treatment, which I've 
honestly only read about half of. Only have so much time for a 10,000-ish word piece, Elaine, I think it was. <laughs> what what anything stand out for you in this? Oh, there's a lot of sort of deep dive and a little bit of rehashing into David Zaslov's tenure here. I mean, it goes over some of what we were just talking about, some of these texts written off movies, including Batgirl. Of course. Yep. Yeah. So uh, in in one portion, I mean, this is a very long story. There's lots of interesting highlights here, you know, but given that we were just talking about written off movies, there was a tidbit about Zaslav telling associates that Brian Lord, head of CAA, had supported the decision to, to pull Batgirl and that it wasn't in the interest of CAA clients like star Leslie Grace to be, quote unquote, associated with a bad movie. But then it turns out that a CAA Spox denied that and said that Brian Lord was in fact not consulted in advance of the studio's move to cancel the movie. So, you know, uh-huh. a bit of a differing version of events here. I see. I guess they didn't interview John Cena's agent. We'll see how that that goes down in that relationship. Cena, of course, is a star of their Max series, The Peacemaker, and a lot of business there at, at Warner Brothers. So curious to see how this all goes. But also, Elaine, it's just curious. These write-offs are still happening. We're now in you know the fourth quarter here, 2023. This is all not behind us, Elaine, at this point. This is the era of Hollywood we're in now. Yeah, really? Is it? I mean, it kind of is. That's, yeah, is that kind of... Depressing? I mean, why this is more <laughs> depressing than like before? Like, is this just going to be an ongoing fact of life for studio business? Well, you want to do the recap of this year. We've had, what, six months of labor strife. We've oh, had I mean, several the, yeah, written yeah. off movies. We had layoffs at the top of this year, which I can't believe was still only at the top of 2023. Like, it's been yeah. it's been kind of a grim year for the industry. Yeah, and to have it all, like, the strikes have been settled, which we'll get into more in a moment with, with SAG, but, you know, and then to have this news come out of another write-off, it's like, oh, you know, Jesus, it's still, still happening, but... Anyway, so that was <laughs> positive news of new money and negative news of more write-offs. But my main impression this week doing the wake-up is, you know, Hollywood is really totally back to work. It felt like a week, it might have been in February at this point in terms of the amount of deal news that was going on across TV and films. You have actors being attached to new series and movies. You've got John Hamm doing a new show from Sean Ryan over at Sony TV. Denzel is going streaming with his first big project over at Netflix. Pedro Pascal may be joining the Fantastic Four. So this stuff is flowing out pretty steadily. Some TV series have already been back in production this week, and other actors have been given kind of you know report-to-set timelines for their shows. And most importantly, Elaine, award season schmoozing has already put together a calendar of events and press days for seemingly the next couple of weeks. And it seemed like it took like one day to put like all this stuff together. Like it was impressive. Oh, folks are eager. Everybody's back out there. Let's put all those stars back on those panels. We get them, them back talking out. about get their out. projects like, again. Yeah, yeah. Like pushed out in the podium. Like go, up, go, go, go. Napoleon had their big world premiere this week from Sony and Apple. I was at an event for A24's The Iron Claw with Zac Efron and the full cast on Tuesday here in New York City. And you and Claire had a piece this week touching on all of this, Elaine. Do tell what's going on with the Golden Globes. So as we know, the Golden Globes, we're only about seven weeks out now. Is that and it? Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's scheduled for it's j- January 7th, 2024. Wow. We are okay. in mid-November. This year has really flown by. And yeah. amid all of the hubbub of everything else going on, I wonder if people have forgotten that the Golden Globes still don't technically have a broadcast home. After any, any, any home at all, there's nowhere. Any home. no no yeah. streaming home, no broadcast home. This is an award show without a platform right now, and we're only seven weeks out. They have executive producers, they have the guys from White Cherry Entertainment, veteran, you know, Academy Award producers, but no actual place for it. So Claire and I looked into all of the places that 
the Globes had been shopped around to. We know Netflix didn't want the Globes. NBC doesn't want the Globes. Uh, NBC actually already has a playoff game. There's an NFL game scheduled for January 7th. So there's definitely, definitely no coming back around on that. None of the NBCU properties are going to host it. It's just such a 180 from where the Globes used to be before. I mean, this was the show that was only second to the Oscars in terms of the glitz and the glamour. It was what? It was sort of like the Oscars fun drunk best friend, right? <laughs> right. This is as of like 2019 was still doing a huge number. I mean, COVID and the pandemic put a real dent in it. But still three years ago, it wasn't like this is a, a long trodden, you know, no offense, uh, Critics' Choice Awards from that was big in 2012. You know, this is a, a recent hit that was still doing very well as of recently and getting a lot of money from NBC, right? Yeah. And, you know, you know, it was once worth, what, $64 million a year to the network. Oh, wow. wow. Um, and, and that price has already fallen to about a reported $43 million this year. So, like, if you want to look at the drop in valuation, that's a, that's a pretty big drop year that's over good year. One third, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is a show that got 17 to 20 million viewers at its peak. Like this is it's nothing to sneeze at. But of course, with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the scandal that they faced in 2021 after that big Los Angeles Times expose that, you know, really scrutinized its membership, the diversity of its membership, you know, some of its finances and, and other things. I don't know if it's untouchable now, but certainly it does not seem to be a coveted property anymore. Yeah, and last year it was on NBC for a one a one year deal. That was mm -hmm. it. And clearly that was a one year deal. And now, you know, got I think it was five point nine or maybe six six six, six million about six point three million, yeah. I think. Yeah, five point nine was the Emmys and yeah, six point three million viewers. Amazing that you just pulled that out of your head though. Why well, <laughs> if you read my newsletter, Elaine, this is welcome to my brain. This is what this is what it's like manifested in a, in a podcast. But you know, I mean look, it's six point three is fine. It's you know, but is it it ain't worth 50, 60 million dollars. I mean, that's, that's for a sure. Far uh, away shot from 17 to 20 mil. Yeah. And you will be going up. Whoever wants this thing is going up against an NFL playoff game. You know, NBC has the game. It's going to air against this. Mm -hmm. So good luck with that in terms of getting, a, you know, an audience in the door here. So and because this is the only thing I know about football these days, I'm just like, what if it's a Travis Kelsey game and Taylor Swift is there? Well, listen, <laughs> you may, you, the Chiefs may well be playing. It's very likely or not likely, but they'll be in the playoffs this year. So, you know, yeah, a lot, a lot going against it and trying to find a home that makes this all worthwhile, I guess, at this point. So what is the what they're still looking for a home or what's kind of the rub here? Elaine? So we reached out to, well. Well, it's all under uh, the, the Penske Media Eldridge umbrella right now. The show is run by Dick Clark Productions. They produce live events. That's part of a subsidiary. It's a subsidiary of this joint venture between Penske and Eldridge. So we reached out and we're told on the record that there is a partner and it will be announced shortly. Uh, oh. But that seems to be cutting it very close to the actual air date. Again, we're seven weeks out. It's mid-November and there, there really hasn't been a big push, Thanksgiving a big promotional is next push. Week. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. So, uh-huh. Yeah, those those promos would usually start running at least on you know on NBC in early December, like a month out. You know, then mm -hmm. who's the host and all this other stuff that goes on with this, right? And really, haven't seen that much coverage around this. Around that, you know, you know I mean, where, where where are they going to land? And the nominations should be coming out. I've checked the date on it, but I think it's usually mid or early December. So anyway. <laughs> the calendar, the time waits for no one, Elaine. Richard, you'll be going regardless, I'm sure, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be bothering people on the smoking platform there. And uh, <laughs> like everybody else, paying no attention to what's on the podium. But this is the time they should have done. I've been calling for this for a decade now, that what the Globes wants to be is a Bravo reality show called The Making of the Globes, where mm -hmm. all the zany foreign press association members, we show the 
antics of them uh, cavorting with with movie stars and getting invited to Christopher Nolan's house for dinner every night and all that. And and I would watch that. And their zany antics leading up to that and then go straight into the show. The world will love them. And they have declined to take my advice up to this point, but maybe they'll listen now. I could see that being a Ricky Gervais produced project and I'm going to bring it all full circle for everybody. But elsewhere in Lane, we have SAG membership voting as we speak. The voting uh, period began on, on Tuesday. It ends Tuesday, December 5th. Uh, quite a quite a generous voting period there, Lane. That's right. But you had quite a few conversations and two new podcasts, actually, in the Angler podcast feed. You can go check those out with people who were in the room and the negotiations. So uh, do tell. Right. So last week, I got a chance to talk to Fran Drescher and Duncan Crabtree Ireland. This week, got a chance to talk to two of the negotiating committee members who have been there for several negotiating cycles and were there in the room this time around. Uh, Michelle Hurd from Picard and, and Law and & Order and uh, Kevin E. West, both longtime performers, have a lot of experience in this industry and on the negotiating committee, and really wanted them to break down for me the AI component of this and also this new streaming residuals structure, which, like, it's a brand new fund. It's very, it's different, it sounds like, from the way the Writers Guild structured their deal. It's like this fund where after high-performing shows meet a certain threshold, the residuals go into this fund, and then 75% of that gets given to the actors, the cast members, and then the other 25% is for SAG to disperse at their discretion. And so they really broke down, like, what that means and how does that apply to journeyman actors, as well as the AI component of that, because that's the thing that's really gotten everybody talking. I mean, we've seen some pretty high-profile criticism from Justine Bateman and other performers who say that those protections don't go far enough. We've seen criticism over the fact that the full tentative agreement hasn't been released and that members are likely going to have to vote without having seen this full agreement, which is, again, right. unlike the way the Writers Guild did it. They released their summary. They released the full agreement just days after the deal was uh, struck. And so the SAG membership, and again, it's 160,000 members, they're dealing with a little bit of a different scenario here as they try to figure out whether to vote for this deal or not. I mean, of course, it was a unanimous vote. It was 17 to zero. So the negotiating committee itself feels very strongly about this. We'll see how the members feel. And there's been, you know, two informational sessions so far. So we'll see if they're getting all their questions answered. But uh, we tried to get some of those questions answered here, too. Yeah, and it's the AI fact. It's not just one AI. It's just like generative AI, and you can do you know the scan, and then it's like, well, do you want to create somebody's likeness out of you know research their the inputs from other or yeah, past performances, performers, synthet synthetic synthetic performers. performers, right? Yeah, which it wasn't just like one bucket of like, can we use AI or not? It was very detailed and granular. And even I had a few questions myself as to how exactly this would work for, for a couple of those scenarios, especially the, the synthetic one. We'll hear it in an excerpt from this interview soon. But one question is like, okay, but what about traditional jobs where human actors would have done this? Are they going to get, are they going to be replaced by AI? And Michelle Hurd said that, well, part of it is a cost issue, right? Like, will it cost more to actually like store the AI and like, you know, get this person scanned or will it actually just cost less to still have the human actor there? So, I mean, these are these are discussions that I think studios are going to have with among themselves as time goes on. Yeah. Well, let's cut now to a clip for your conversation with the SAG NEGCOM members, as, uh, as they call them in the industry here. So here's a clip. The protections we have 
at the moment without question in terms of the existence of a human being and the usage of a human being are currently the best in the world. And there are people who just simply say, you know, well, we should, you should just only use a human and we can't have AI. There's an element of that that is unfortunately just simply not, a, not living in the real world. Now, background actors have the exact same protections. First of all, you have to be asked. And, and here's another thing I just want to make clear because everybody's freaking out. So the background is also fearful that they're going to have these digital doubles and that it's going to replace them. No, my friends, it's not going to replace them. Your digital double only works and gets paid for you get paid every time you work and every time your digital double works. And they are not allowed to replace actors, background, uh, stunt people with a digital double and not compensate the, the individual that they are utilizing that digital double with. We also have background minimums and not take away the existing background minimums as real humans that exist in our contract. The, those minimums still apply. You're not able to use a digital replica to replace part of the human count that exists in our contract for backgrounds. And there are a lot of job considerations that you would pass on something, Elaine. Somebody could say, hey, this role has a certain type of nudity. And Michelle would go, okay, well, I'm just simply not doing it. Uh, I understand. Exactly right. I very much understand the concern for, well, if you don't want to get scanned, then you may not get the job. And there's going to be a degree of that that is going to be accurate over time. That's the other thing that people are saying is that if they have a digital double of us, they're going to do whatever they want with us. No, <laughs> just like with yeah. me as an actor, they can't do whatever they want with me. It's consent. It's clear, defined information of what they need it for. And, and we have safeguards on when the person passes away, when they die, they can't use your digital double in any other way, willy-nilly. They will have to go to your estate, meaning any people in your family, ask them for permission. If that estate is not there, they have to go to the union. And the union will utilize the information that you have already given on consent of your other things and follow that suit. So it's not like if I said I don't want to ever do a movie that has me um, you know, naked or whatever, and then I die, and they're like, woo, Michelle got me naked now. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Well, there's nothing quite like working two jobs at the same time, Elaine. Anyway, I can get somebody to do the podcast for me. Well, maybe I write my newsletter. Is that can I <laughs> work that out with the AI? Is it does it do that yet? Yeah, that's in that's in the work, Sean. I mean, next week it'll be AI Sean, and then you can go and write your newsletter. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. But again, the whole interview is up in the feed right now, Elaine. Yep. Uh, interview is up and you can listen to that. And you can also listen to our shorter interview after SAG's big press conference last week with uh, President Fran Drescher and their chief negotiating officer. So it's, you know, been an interesting time this past week since the summary was released. And again, the membership is still digesting this. And yeah, there are some parts that seem to be making people happy. There are other parts that are really becoming points of contention here. And, and AI seems to be one of them, as it has been these last six months. All right. Well, we will see where the vote comes in in a couple of weeks. We'll be sure to pick up and update you all on that at that point come early December. All right. Up next, the Netflix Cup, including what I'm sure will be a very thorough buffet report from Richard. But first, <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. All right. So the big event of the week, Richard did sports. Richard, mm -hmm. do tell. Yeah, I'm surprised that you all aren't still celebrating. We have a new world champion of golf racing. Uh, golf racing? Fans and golf racing, yes. Uh, Wait, so is that you race while you play golf or you golf while you race? Well, so the Netflix Cup, it pairs up one racer and one golfer. 
both of whom are from their respective realities. Well, a PGA golfer and an F1 racer, and there's a full swing PGA show and a F1, of course, Drive to Survive. So yeah, there, there's sort of documentary shows uh, yes. where they, where they where yes. the profiles and the life of that would that have uh, very big followings on on Netflix and have become incredibly popular. So it's kind of like a road rules uh, real world challenge where they mash up the two shows and they uh, give them a thing and uh, the golf racing category, which they golf a few holes, but then they kind of run to their golf cart and drive their golf cart really fast by the standards of golf cart to the golf carts. And and, uh, I went because I've I've been really interested in the Netflix event space. You know, it was, it was for people who are, are fans of these racers. It was, it was a fun event, big crowds on hand. I've never been to a golf match in person. Never actually watched one on TV either for that matter. But uh, I imagine there's less sort of uh, catcalling and hooting at the uh, golfers as they tee off there in in real life golf, uh, which was pretty much the case uh, here. And uh, it was a a wacky, fun event. And it was them building their different brands. And I think they spent something close to a fortune on it. It appeared from the multiple buffet just on the the my portion of the buffets i think it was uh like well <laughs> into the seven figures um, of course i'll say the prime rib was excellent maybe maybe the best prime rib i've had wow really well, there you go there's the pull quote netflix there you go <laughs> and i've been to lowry's many times it's very good uh but sensational prime rib and it was just sort of a, a zany fun vegas event of the type that networks used to do back in the days when they had money flowing around and took chances on things and just tried things out. It suddenly just came like this, like battle of the network stars, almost like in a exactly. weird throwback to a say. Like I was like, that's what it kind of reminded me. Of. I'm like, oh yeah, they used to do this all the time. But sitcom talent playing against each other from the network in a in a sporting event. Yeah, yeah, and you know what it did? It built up bonds between the viewers and these contestants, and they it built up awareness of these people. And these racers are very well followed and beloved, apparently, by people who follow racing and golfing. And that's yeah. part of what Netflix has done so well with its sports docs. I think. I mean, really building that relationship between the viewer. It's like, I don't know anything about racing, but I was into it watching Drive to Survive. I mean, I really liked Breakpoint. Um, obviously, being a huge tennis obsessive, well, tennis, that was that's, great. Yeah, yes. right, that, that's the yeah, You're in the back for that one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and didn't I see something about Netflix talking to the NBA this week? Yeah, there's a much larger thing going on there for a second, which I will get to in a moment. But Richard, I do want to know. I guess it was at three. It was at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, right? Yeah, I mean, I quizzed them on. What are your expectations or ratings? Are you getting the numbers back? And and they they did not seem uh, inordinately focused on that or having huge expectations. It's it's a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, so. But I admire that that spirit when when everyone else like every choice just has the the sword of Damocles hanging over it in Hollywood, and everything is about to break a studio that they're just doing a crazy golf racing match. Yeah. And I saw a picture of those jackets. Those jackets are pretty crazy looking. (laughs) Total checkered flag, big Netflix N on the jacket and on the trophy. It was a lot. Uh, Ned came up and uh, put them on them personally. And for some reason, Mark Wahlberg was wandering around the whole thing. And sure, why not? He's Mr. Mr. Vegas. You guys know that, right? He's moved there. But also in, in character, 
Had the biggest entourage I have ever seen. <laughs> no, he moved everybody there. No, he moved all of his people to Vegas. Like, is that he's where Mr. Wahlberg Vegas now. Uh, well, I don't know. I think they're, they're probably based in the Northeast, I would imagine. But no, he's moved. Like he's famous. He sold his ninety million dollar Beverly Hills, whatever estate, and like he's building like production capabilities in Vegas. Like he is Mr. Vegas now, and he brought all of his people with him. So I'm glad they all came to the outing, uh, Richard. He was hanging out at this one hole. And a security person came running up and screamed, it's time for Mr. Wahlberg to, to, to move. And it must have been well, bye. easily 50 people who, who, who marched out with it. <laughs> like, it, I have never seen a more presidential uh, uh, entourage. You have a motorcade, right. a Wahlberg yeah. motorcade. Friday in the Ankler will be my complete uh, – Report on on the 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 game, the the people, and and the buffet, as well as my exclusive uh, five questions with uh, Bella Baharia herself. Was, oh, bye! All right, there you go. Is one of them about the prime rib, or was that is that one of the questions, or no? She didn't seem like she was taking as great an interest in the buffets as I was. So, well, there, there was no cheeseburgers, Richard. So that's probably what it was. Yeah, you know, exactly that, part of the issue. But it's also something you know. Again, low stakes, Richard, to your account of you know. I mean. That there was a winner, and then clearly there's a, some fanfare. But it's also an event, Elaine. You know, it's a live stream. Their third live stream. Third live stream event. It's the second one that worked. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, two so out of three. That's pretty this, good. Two out of three is pretty good. No, that that was actually three out of four because I wasn't counting to Love Is Blind. Uh. Oh, okay. So three out of four. I guess. All right. I'm missing one. Oh, but they had they had another one. Love is blind that actually did work. I think. And then yes, this would be the fourth thing. Right, Chris Rock, right. of course, being the first one. So three out of four. But you know, it's also a thing we can watch for those fans of those shows. Elaine, you can watch it. You know, streaming after the fact is probably just as entertaining to watch. Again, people putting a Billy Madison spin, or you know, sorry, Happy Gilmore spin, I'm wrong on Adam Sandler movie, on this kind of making it fun, raucous event where you know uh, people just—it's a fun watch, maybe for a couple hours. So, yeah, having not heard of the Netflix Cup prior to Richard going, I look forward to this. I'm expecting something of like holy moly proportions. Or th- yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep, same kind of, yeah, probably fanfare. So, but yeah, there was a uh, about your question about the NBA earlier. You know, there was some talk or reporting from the Sports Business Journal this week that Netflix is at least having some, say, kicking the tires or having conversations with the NBA about potentially getting the NBA Cup, which is their new in season tournament, which takes place on Tuesdays and, and Friday nights on ESPN and, and TNT. And it's essentially all of November, the championship in early December, what, you know, a pretty relegated period of, of time for the, the, the NBA Cup. It's separate from the the regular season, but the rights for that will come up at some point to be able to go somewhere else. And the NBA, I just learned this this week, their rights for their current domestic deals are up, of course, in 2025, but their international rights are also up in 2025, Elaine. So they can really have pretty much carte blanche to do what they want with all their games, which is a unique proposition, as we saw with the Major League Soccer going with Apple globally, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. a lot of these companies Amazon, the global players, true global players, you know, really want that that scale if they're going to invest in a sport. So you could see a path where the NBA Cup globally on Netflix could be a, a proposition at the right price. And I feel like they've been dabbling, dabbling, right? Like nothing official well, of like, we would love to be a big player in the live sports, but it's very clear that there's been an interest there's there. There's interest, you know, yeah. They think that what the world surfing thing they looked at at one point, you know, there's, there's mm-hmm. been, you know, little things like that here and there, but it adds another bit of intrigue into this, you know, the NBA, which is the major, major, you know, deal that's on the horizon in sports for the next 
arguably the rest of the decade. So we shall see, but definitely some interesting possibilities there if you can do global with them. And even domestically, you know, Netflix is in about 70 million U.S. subscribers at this point, plus or minus, you know, the Canada ones, who know how that splits out, but say it's 70 million, that's about the same size as ESPN at this point. Yeah, you can do very well with just a domestic audience. Just a, just a, yeah, exactly. So they've matched that size of a, of a cable network in terms of, you know, reach is very important for all these these sports leagues, and Netflix is, that, is the only streamer in the U.S. that has that same reach as the cable bundle. So it's an interesting proposition once you start to dive into the numbers. So... Something to keep an eye on. All right. We have Peter Kiefer in the wings here about to join us. He's going to spill some tea on the Britney book adaptation rights. And Richard finally gets to play a studio chief, sadly, without the stock options. But we'll be right back after a quick break. All right. We're back. Joined by Peter Kiefer here at The Ankler, who had a piece this week on a topic he knows very well. Britney Spears. What's the latest in Britney's world, Peter? Yeah, we're taking a slight detour from um, Taylor Swift and uh, focusing this week a little bit on a precursor, actually, Britney. Sure. If you haven't been sleeping under a rock, you're probably aware that Britney released uh, a memoir uh, recently, which shot right up to the top of the bestseller list. It's called The Woman in Me. And it was like an unbelievable success. Uh, you know, uh, sold over a million copies in the first week alone. And what I'd learned, which wasn't surprising, was that there was a lot of interest in, in turning it into a potential television show or movies or, or documentaries. What was of interest was to find out who was gunning for those rights. And we put that together in a story that came out on Sunday. And what was interesting were the names alone. These are the, some of the biggest heavy hitters in town. Uh, Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, Shonda Rhimes has been going for it, uh, and wow. Reese Witherspoon and her company, Hello Sunshine, all have been uh, aggressively courting Spears. And yet, despite all of that interest, which actually dates back a few months, a number of these people had been aware that the book was uh, coming out and jumped on the gun pretty early to try and and nab those rights. Uh, None of them have had very much success in A, getting the rights, or B, even being able to corral Britney for a pitch meeting and to even talk to her. Oh. And that was quite surprising. Yeah. So I, I was calling around, talked to some people that were quote unquote close to Britney. And I, the general feeling is that Britney's, um, she didn't do almost any press when her book came out. It soared to the top just on dint of the sort of amazing story of her life. Yeah, the quotes alone, uh, pull quotes alone were getting so much attention, yeah. Right, and she really laid bare the whole story of her life, which was an, which is incredible. The fact that she soared to success and then also some of the sort of tragedies and, and, and harrowing stuff about the conservatorship and the various broken relationships and, and all of those things. But what was interesting was typically when you have that level of A-list interest in picking up the rights, these things don't stay in the market for very long. We're talking, you know, very large sums of money and some of the top tier producers in town. And yet it's been peculiar because none of them have landed them. And so what I was able to find out was that Britney's basically was just been floored by the success of her book. It's kind of overwhelmed her. And she's been sort of what I was told was needed to catch her breath from all the hoopla surrounding the book's release. And, you know, it's no secret that Brittany uh, has struggled with some mental health problems in the past. And what's kind of hard to discern in this story was that, you know, I, I think there is a level of exhaustion going on with her. But I also feel I spoke with some producers who uh, have worked with her in the past 
And some of them were were actually just I was I was like, what, what's it? What's she like? And they're like, well, you know, she's never really been somebody where a name moves the needle for her. It just didn't. It didn't really impress her, just because so and so is is gunning for the book. So it's one of those few things. But it, it's a peculiar situation, and it's it, it begs the question of when you have this hot of a property and you have all of these top people going for them, how long can that property stay in that high echelon of interest for the town? And I mean, I'd learned that you know there was like some broken meetings, and even some very, very powerful people in this industry had sort of been kind of left, like quite literally ghosted in a meeting from Brittany. That that happened huh. on at least one occasion. So something something's going on. Hopefully, nothing too serious. I think that the people that I've talked to who are around her are confident that they'll move forward, and that the sense that they're getting is that these producers are sympathetic. They understand that this is a lot and that Britney's been through a lot and they want to be, uh, you know, sensitive to the situation uh, that she might find herself in right now. But you're, you're talking about a, a lot of money. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. This is right up there with, you know, some of the, the biggest rights deals that we've seen in the last few years. I, I was told anywhere from, you know, two and a half to, to up to $4 million for just the book wow. rights. But I know that there have been some outreach about locking down the, uh, some sort of documentary rights. And that could go as high as, uh, I was told, almost $40 million by a source. Wow. So that's a very, very large sum of money. <laughs> it's like, yeah, life rights kind of thing. Yeah, yeah life rights. And, and like sort of a, a, a decent comp on that was when uh, Apple TV produced the uh, Billie Eilish documentary oh, yeah. in 2021. Yeah. I reportedly paid around $25 million. $25 million, I think, right? Yeah. Yep, 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 exactly. So so this is this is real money. And it was just a kind of a, a story just about, you know, this does not happen normally. And it's just one that I just wanted to point out to, to our readership because she's such a huge figure. I think people in many ways are applauding the success around the book. But this sort of situation is just, peculiar and so that was that was basically the story yeah. and she's also good going through the divorces looming as well i mean she you know the personal life is not in a great place right now for Brittany either so you know there's definitely some life factors you're right peter that you know uh, this may be a you could see you could you could see the scenario being where it could be a bit much where and look she doesn't you know maybe she need the money or whatever it might sound that may not be the big motivating factor here and, and wanting it done right and trust is you know you're trusting people with your life story which isn't you know she's for someone who's been burned by the press a lot over the years i'm sure she's you know a little resident reticent about this uh, at this point now yeah. I, I, I could see all these things happening i would put it that way yeah yeah and i think it's just worth mentioning there's there's you know the big uh, story surrounding Britney over the past few years was how she was uh, able to successfully get out of this conservatorship right. that would, had she been shackled with, with, when her father was basically making all financial decisions that spawned this big free Britney movement. And when the judge ultimately sided with her back in 2021, that prompted Governor Newsom in California to actually change uh, the laws Everyone knows it was basically in response to what happened with Britney Spears to make it easier for people who are in these conservatorships to ultimately free themselves and advocate for themselves. Yeah. I, I note that only because if freed from a conservatorship, you want to make sure that these individuals who, who may go in and out of personal struggles, that they're surrounding themselves with you know, good people. And, and, and I get the sense that Britney has really good people around her and they're, and they're doing right by her. So, so I think that if she needs any help at all, I think she's got a good team around her. Yeah. Yep. And of course, uh, Shonda Rhimes, of course, wrote 
Britney's movie Crossroads way back in the day, Peter. So she uh, she goes way back with the Britney film career. He, he, totally. I'd love to see what Margot Robbie could do with this thing or, uh, yeah. you know. Elaine, you in for a Britney movie? Always, always. Always, okay. We have a first ticket sold, Peter. So there you go, (laughs) sign it up. But you can check out Peter's great read over there over at theankler.com. Peter, good to see you. Thanks for a little bit of Britney tea there to round out the podcast. We'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. All right, so uh, at the box office, obviously we have the Marvels 2, week two. Richard, you had a column this week about Marvel. Obviously a lot of opinions out there, some quite hyperbolic, shocking, I know. But what was your takeaway from the Marvel situation that you, you put in your piece this week at the Ankler? Well, after the underperformance of the Marvels, there were a lot of people out there saying the whole Marvel enterprise is doomed. And there were a lot of people out there saying uh, that Marvel is going to be fine. It's just a little wobble. And, right. A one-off or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Kevin's got this. And a lot of times they said both those things in the, in the course of one column. And I think, I think both are wrong. <laughs> but I, I think it's hard to look at Marvel outside. You got, you, you got kind of a systematic... Um, underperformance across the entire superhero sector. And, you know, I mean, Marvel hasn't collapsed completely. They've had some, you look at the top 10 movies of this year, you'll you'll see some Marvel on there. A lot of yeah. s- screen gems would love to have a couple movies of the top 10 this year. So it's, uh, sure. it's not all terrible, but it's just like if Marvel were an independent stock, did it lose money, lose value, or gain value in 2023? And clearly, it lost value right. based on its performance. And, you know, you have a, a major character, Captain Marvel, there, who, if, if she were a stock, has certainly lost a lot of value. You have, and, uh, and other characters as well. But the thing here is you have, across the superhero sector, this general underperformance. Across Disney, you have underperforming divisions everywhere you look. And across all the films, you have underperforming blockbusters as far as the eye could see. So there's a general kind of malaise about these big, giant movie franchises that is broken occasionally by things like Barbie. This is a great counterexample uh, that that things that are something different and break through and get the public's attention again. And these studios put a lot of a lot of bets at just a few baskets right there. And and at Disney without Marvel performing it at its peak is uh, it's hard to imagine what you've got there. So it certainly can come back. But I, I reminded everybody that while a comeback is possible and likely that Marvel has Fantastic Four and X-Men now now under its roof. So that'll be coming out. Deadpool as well. But the other side of it is genres do end. They in fact, all genres eventually lose their their luster. Musicals were the biggest thing since the dawn of uh, of the talkie, and and they went away. Westerns went went away. The natural disaster boom of the nineteen nineties, which seemed right. seemed to be the future of film, went away. The uh, the more the seventies for that yeah, matter. That the same one. Seventies yeah. went away. You can go on and on there. Uh, the yep. R-rated comedy, as we've discussed, has, as we've discussed, yeah, yep, has has, has completely vanished from the landscape. Yeah. So to say, superheroes are just going to be fine. Hollywood has a very hard time ever imagining that anything will be different than it is now. And the mm-hmm. and the trade press, you know, has that times 20. Uh, <laughs> right. any, any change from how things now is a catastrophe or a disaster uh, until it proves itself a success, in which case it's a thing that will always be in charge. It could never be changed. It, you know, do it. And that's uh, where we are with Marvel. Yeah. 
Yeah, but if you look at the year, you know, I mean, and again, the superhero genre, not, not just Marvel, but, you know, if in DC has not had a year to remember, we shall see what Aquaman 2 comes in it at. It just gets very hard with the genre when the the Marvels was film number 35, I think? 33. 33, 33 yeah. The Marvel. So it gets very hard on your 33rd and <laughs> Right. To keep it right. Like, fresh and exciting and, like, this is like Every everything time. you've ever seen before. Not at all like the... Mm. 33 right. films that came before this. Um, if you have a deep attachment with the character, like the world seems to have with, with, with Spider-Man. Right. Um, which is the one film this summer that did, which did very well this summer, the animated yeah. feature. Yeah, It makes yeah. it a lot easier. But remember, the Andrew Garfield trilogy is not exactly uh, what the world points to as the great success of cinema. Yep, but came back with Tom Holland. DC's taking the year off until James Gunn Empire comes in in 2025. And Disney has cleared the decks. Some of that strike-induced, of course, with just not <laughs> they won't be able to shoot a lot of this stuff. But Deadpool 3 will be end of July, and that's going to be it for, for a year. So there is this reset period kind of coming in, Richard. Yeah, and frankly, Deadpool's a, a good bet for them to have for now. Deadpool's its own, yeah. I mean, that's not even, I wouldn't take anything from that. <laughs> I mean, sh- Hugh Jackman and uh, combining Wolverine and Deadpool to yeah. the movie, unless it's a complete you know, creative disaster, would be not one to, to bet against. It's such a unique series that just doesn't yeah, resemble. It doesn't apply. To R-rated. It's not, you know, it's, it's uh, pick your pick your aspect of it. But if you're a studio head, Richard, you make, you have, you know, you have a slot to fill and say, you know, fall of 2025, you got to fill it. You got $200 million. What do you go with the, the superhero pick? And I'm going to put you both in the studio head chairs without any of the compensation. What do you do with $200 million and a, and a slot to fill in 2025? Elaine, I'm going to start with you first. This is more wishful fulfillment than anything else, but I'm going to say rom-coms. I need uh, to a, see the return a, of a whole the, bunch of rom-coms. Yes, a whole bunch of rom-coms, Sean. Yeah, if there can be right. 33 Marvel movies, I want to see 33 <laughs> rom-coms. I want to have to stop watching When Harry Met Sally to get my fix. <laughs> All right. Well, you have one coming in. Uh, anyone but you? You have this, you know, this movie coming out in, from Sony in December. So hopefully you'll show up to for that one, one Elaine. That's good. Vote with your vote with your dollars. <laughs> All right. If you want more of these things, go see them in theaters. Very important part of this, you know. So all right, Elaine's gonna uh, bet on the rom com genre. She's gonna find the next Julia Roberts and give her, give her a big paycheck for 2025. Richard, what are you doing? Uh, well, a question: Can I keep the two hundred million? Is that <laughs> uh, well, Richard's like I'm investing in me? Richard Zaslav and say, if I don't spend this two hundred million, can I have thirty? Uh, that would uh, let's let's assume no on that uh, Richard, because I making think. a two hundred dollar two hundred million dollar bet on something that's going to come off come out in two years from now when God knows what the media environment. Will look like yeah. Well, that's it, that's the job. That's the job. That is the job. It's a it's a very scary thing to do. So my my first choice would be give the job to somebody else. Uh, okay. To do. <laughs> Elaine will happily take your money. I would say what I do when I walk into a a restaurant that I know and trust. I'd get the most exciting filmmaker who works at that level and give him the money and say, "Surprise me." Right. That's what you do at right. restaurants. In two years. <laughs> <laughs> I I go to Richard's a very high say, roller. I, He's a very high roller. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> That's how he got the prime rib in Vegas. That's how exactly what he said. Went to the guy behind the buffet. Surprised me. Yeah, okay. All right. I like that. I mean, yeah, my, my first thing was, what does Christopher Nolan have in 2025 <laughs> would be my, 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 my first uh, phone call to make. But not far from your strategy, Richard, in that sense of I would take... I was thinking maybe Spielberg in a real Spielberg classic throwback, big budget, you know, not a, a Fableman's kind of movie, but, a, you know, and the, the genre that people love. And outside of the, the the superhero vote and this kind of tired genre vote from the audience this year that we've seen, we have seen them come out for, I'll call them auteurs or directorial brands. Scorsese's doing okay. Oppenheimer did very well. The Killer from Fincher just did extremely well on Netflix, especially for what that film is. Creatively, it's a pretty a small movie, but it's a you know a one character study kind of thing. I would give Christopher Nolan a two hundred million dollar budget for a movie that will only be shown at the Sphere. <laughs> oh, okay. wow! In Sphero-Vision or whatever you call it, and it will just run there for a hundred years. Uh, that's it. Well, the, they they didn't list Darren Aronofsky to shoot a film. It was basically a, a, nature, a nature documentary or no, movie, a real but... Christopher Nolan movie. But yes, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, there we go. Well, at least the maybe the premiere's there, but yeah, shot shot for the sphere, right? Exactly. You thought IMAX was big. Wait till you see uh, Nolan on on the sphere. Yeah, fourteen thousand yeah. seat uh, theater there. So yeah, I think it's a bit closer to twenty. Either way, yeah. But uh, yeah, the UFC is going to do a fight there this fall, so people are getting into this thing. So anyway, all right. Well, that was our. There's our advice. Take it or leave it. Rom coms. We didn't say already comedy this time out, so at least we'll be thankful for that. At theaters, otherwise new this weekend. We have a, a big return to the marquee finally after these kind of dribs of one movie a week for quite a while now. We got the new Hunger Games pick. Elaine, what's your relationship with the Hunger Games? Are you in? I was super into the books and the movies back then, but it also just feels like a really long time ago. Okay. Elaine, Elaine's gotten matured. Is that, is that what we're saying? We're not, saying Elaine has moved voice. on. Is that it? <laughs> this is a, a prequel to the to the previous three films. All right. Well, we'll get Richard's recipe next week for what he's having at the Thanksgiving spread. Always good to see you both. And thanks again to Peter for joining us. And remember, you can subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com to get the full suite of newsletters and podcasts. Uh, all of Richard's pieces, my daily wake-up newsletter, and of course, the latest from the Entertainment Strategy Guy, all the insights from Hollywood and beyond and inside the executive suites with Peter, Elaine, and Claire and the rest of the team. You can follow the, the Ankler at The Ankler on the socials. And we'll definitely have an episode next week uh, during holiday week, but thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>